And so tonight we're going to be talking about the doctrine of justification, uh, justification by faith alone. So before we get into that, I want you to turn with me to the first chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 1. And I'll be reading verses 16 and 17. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that every single word that you have willed, Lord, to be recorded in this book that we have in front of us is fully inspired, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, that we may have it for our instruction, for reproof, for training, and for uh, instruction in righteousness, Father. Um, Father, we just thank you that your words are pure. And we thank you that we can trust your word because it came directly from you. Father God, we ask that you would um, open our eyes and our hearts tonight to see your word. And most of all, to see Christ in your word. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I, I wanted to kind of take a chance tonight to do not only some exhortation, but a little bit of teaching uh, that we're so um, I'll be reading from several different sources here tonight on this, mostly from the scripture. We're going to go through a couple of passages that talk about justification. Um, but before that, just to kind of discuss what is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, or as uh, the Reformed call it classically, sola fide. Sola, um, you know, Latin for alone or only. Um, and fide is Latin for faith. So we get by faith alone. And, uh, you know, in this modern day and age, sometimes that gets distorted by some people because they think uh, that it means uh, faith, just bare faith by itself, our faith, it's something we do. And there's all different kinds of errors that can be got into them. But in the sense that it was meant, when the term was coined, it meant that um, faith was um, the instrument by which we were justified. Faith is the faith by which we receive Christ. And so um, I just wanted to read here from Romans chapter 3 to flip over a couple pages to your right. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace the gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, 
Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So this doctrine is um, in a lot of ways misunderstood, misapplied, and mischaracterized by those that are opposed to it um, today. And so, and they'll say uh, all kinds of stuff, uh, they'll have all kinds of objections to it, and we'll get to some of those later. But uh, if you read anything that Paul wrote in the Bible, this doctrine just jumps off the page of edge. And so I thought it was important tonight to discuss this doctrine because when you misunderstand it, it's not as easy to rest it. It's not as easy to grasp it and to grab a hold of this doctrine and to find the comfort that's there. So I want to uh, go to our catechism tonight. This will be question. Question 35. Um, what benefits do they that are effectually called partake in, partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake in justification, adoption sanctification and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. So when I was sitting down originally and I was preparing something, I had planned to speak on sanctification. With my main topic, the one I had picked out, I was going to do kind of a study similar to this one on sanctification because it is even more misunderstood and misapplied than justification. And as I was studying, and as I was attempting to do this, I realized that I needed to cover about, uh, I needed to cover two more topics before I got to the subject of sanctification. Because if we delve into the topic of sanctification without having this rightly understood, we can get to some crazy views on sanctification, sanctification quick, fast, and in a hurry. It's easy to mess up. And it was the primary reason for the Protestant Reformation. The, uh, the verse that I read in the beginning was uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. And those were the two verses that according to history uh, Martin Luther was pondering at the time that he had his kind of his breakthrough moment, his, um, I guess you could call it an epiphany. He, uh, he had this kind of, um, he had this moment where he said, uh, he read that verse and he said, the just shall live by faith, or the righteous shall live by faith. And he was thinking, I'm not righteous. I mean, that sounds really good. It comforts us when we rightly understand what that means. When we understand what that means when it says the righteous shall live by faith. See, when Luther first read that, he read it over and over and over again, but it wasn't, it didn't have the power that it had once he grasped what it meant. He said, the righteous shall live by faith. I'm not righteous. You know, how can any man be just? I'm a sinner, you know. Uh, Luther was really kind of tortured by his faith for a long time. He was a Catholic monk, and if you know anything about monastic life, it's really rigorous. It's really, uh, it's really tough. Back, especially back in that time, being an Augustinian monk, they had strict orders about what they were to do, uh, you know, how they were to live, and Luther took the monastic life very seriously. So, along with that monastic life came rigorous study of the scriptures, came uh, a rigorous life of prayer, confession, penance, all the things that one does in the Catholic Church um, for their justification. And uh, Luther grew really weary of that. He, uh, you know, he would, uh, as the 
tradition and history has it, Luther would go to the confessional so many times that uh, that the priest was like, well, okay, here's the kind of sins you need to come confess to me. Because you don't need to come to confession when you've just, you know, thought about being angry at something or thought about doing something you shouldn't do. You don't need to come to confession for that. Like, it was so bad that the priest was turning him away from the confessional because he was, I mean, he was troubled. He had no peace with God. And uh, he had this moment where he, uh, this really stuck out to him. And he said that this, this righteousness with extra notes outside of himself and that's what I wanted to talk about today. That when we when we read that passage and we read the just shall live by faith, that gets misinterpreted and misapplied a lot today. Because well, we read Romans three twenty three and what it says: No one does good, no one seeks after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And then so we go back and we say, Well, wait a minute. You said the righteous shall live by faith. Now you're telling me that no one is righteous. How can this be? But the script, Paul answers this question in Romans 3, and it says, uh, where was I at? But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all who sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace and gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So Martin Luther was discovering this, um, discovering these truths and it opened up a whole new realm to him. He had, finally, when he understood this, when he grabbed a hold of this, he had peace with God that he couldn't find in the confession, or the confessional booth. He couldn't find it in any of the penance he'd done. Uh, there's a story that goes that he went up to the, uh, he went to uh, Rome, and they had this church there, it was called the Lateran Church. And uh, in Catholic tradition and Catholic uh, penance, uh, you could go there and they had what we called indulgences. And you could get so many indulgences by going up this set of stairs. And I'd, I'd be lying if I said I knew how many stairs were there. But it was several, quite a few, 90, like a, it was a large flight of stairs. And if you um, went up these steps, these stone steps on your knees and said the Hail Marys and you prayed and you got all the way to the top and you've done this, this would count for penance. That, yeah, every step and, and said, said Hail Mary and the next one you said Our Father and then, you know, then you got the next one. Yeah, rosary, yeah. And, uh, then, you know, the Lord's Prayer, and then you get to the top. And then, supposedly, if you got to the top, you received your indulgence. You received, uh, you know, your penance. Something that said, you're right with God. Uh, they would say, uh, te absolvo, I absolve you. Your, your sins are paid for by you doing that. And Luther went there, and he got all the way to the top of the stairs, and he said all the prayers. And he stood up and he said, according to tradition, he stood up and he said, who knows if it is even true? And he walked back down and he still had no peace with God. And the whole time he's climbing this, he, I can't wait to get to the top. I can't wait to stop feeling like this for my sins. But once he had this revelation from Scripture, once this Scripture made sense to him, he said, he said, this is what this means. I've read it. I've studied it. It's right there. And so he posted his 95 thesis on the Catholic Church door at Wittenberg. 
um, October 31st, 1517, and that began the Protestant Reformation. Uh, just a little side story. Most people hear that he nailed his 95 theses up to this Catholic Church door, and they think that it was some kind of um, like act of defiance. Like he was like, I'll show you, I'll just take this. They all show him with a big old hammer, driving in these little bitty nails into a piece of paper or whatever, and nail these things. But that really wasn't the case. It probably was probably more like tax. And it, it, at that time in the Roman Catholic Church, especially at the university, if you had a theological topic you wanted to discuss or anything you wanted to bring before the university to have a forum about, that's where you posted it. The bulletin board, yeah. It was like a bulletin board. So he wasn't like, I'm going to show you, I'm going to nail this up here. That way everybody sees it. That was just where he did it. He was like, let's talk about these things. So Martin Luther wasn't a revolutionary. He was a reformer. He wanted to reform the church according to the scripture. He had a, there was a, uh, the saying goes, it's uh, semper ecclesia reformanda est, which means always a, a, the church is always reforming. And that was according to the word of God. And Martin Luther said, hey, we need to have a talk about this. You've got justification all wrong. And he took this before the church, and they said that, uh, you know, he basically had justification wrong. And uh, Well, I don't know where it is. I had a quote I was going to share. I printed it off, but now I don't know where it went to, so... I guess I'm not going to share it. Um, I found it. I wasn't about to write the whole thing down. <laughs> um, but Martin Luther stated that uh, he was not only one nor the first to say that faith alone makes one righteous. Before him was Ambrose, Augustine, and many others who said it before me. And if a man is going to read and understand St. Paul, he will have to say the same thing. And he can say nothing else. Paul's words are too strong. They allow for no works, none at all. Now if it is not works, it must be faith alone. And so Martin Luther was not a revolutionary. He was not a liberal. He was not crazy like they wanted him to be. He said, you guys have drifted from the teaching. He was doing what books like 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy call pastors and leaders, theologians, to do. To examine the scriptures. See if these things be so. See if they check out. Guard the good deposit, which is the gospel. And he said, guys, you're going this route, and you are losing the very gospel you profess. And uh, likewise, also a proponent of this doctrine, a second century reformer, John Calvin, said that everyone who would obtain the righteousness of Christ must renounce his own. According to Calvin, it is only because the sinner is able to obtain good standing of the, the good standing of the Son of God through faith in him and union with him that sinners have any hope of pardon from acceptance by and peace with God. So, and according to our, uh, our read question 35 in our catechism, and so now I wanted to read uh, question 36, which deals with the topic of justification. Question 36 is what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So, it's not a matter of doing anything to justify ourselves, we cannot commend ourselves before God. There is nothing as it were commendable in us to God. It is only for the sake of his son 
that we are justified, and it is freely, we are freely justified, and his righteousness is imputed to us. And in the catechism, it lists uh, Romans 3, 24 through 25, which we read. And the next, uh, it also lists Romans 5, Um, and so I wanted to read here in Romans 5, uh, starting in verse 1, Therefore we have been justified by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith in his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemy, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And that is the message of the gospel, is reconciliation. How is a sinner who has no righteousness in himself Reconciled to a holy God by faith in Christ. By Christ's righteousness, we are commended to God, not for anything in us. And so it's important when we think about uh, our questions here in the Baptist Catechism, and when we think about this topic of justification by faith alone, that we remember this is an act of God's free grace. Nothing that we have done, will do, can do, or must do can merit this grace. It is grace. If it was earned, it wouldn't be grace, but it would be our due. But since it is by grace, Romans says, then it is received by faith. And I wanted to point out that uh, it says in here, wherein he pardoneth all of our sins, so justification doesn't just take care of your sins up to a certain point. It doesn't just take care of certain sins. It doesn't just take care of the sins that you sinned before you became a Christian. It doesn't just take care of, uh, you know, a small sin over here. It might not cover this one. It covers all sin for all time, and we receive these benefits freely. And accepteth us as righteous in his sight. So we are accepted as righteous in his sight. And I wanted to talk about uh, how we are accepted. You know, if it's not on us, you know, if it's not in us, how are we accepted with him? Well, that's where we get into talking about the doctrine of imputation, or specifically double imputation. Um, when Christ died on the cross um, I think it's in Galatians uh, Galatians chapter 3 I want to go there real quick I hadn't planned on it but I want to go there real quick Galatians chapter 3 Oh, yes. Um, yeah, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, 
Cursed be everyone who do not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So this doctrine of invitation works very much in this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. By being hung on a tree and taking that curse upon himself. When he took that curse upon himself, there was an exchange that happened. He received the curse that was due us for our sin. Our unrighteous, unholy, filthy, dirty standing before God. Christ received all of that on the cross. For as many as believe in him. And then, so when that action takes place, when the crucifixion takes place, and he receives that, now those that have faith in him receive his perfect righteousness. That's why we discussed last week at our men's Bible study how, uh, you know, it's like if, if Christ could have just came and bled and died and it was all done, then he could have just came down here as a 30-year-old man, been crucified, buried, resurrected. That's the gospel. Gospel's over. But that's not how the that's not how the scriptures reveal it to us. He came down here and he lived a perfectly sinless life. He did what the law requires. And that's exactly what Galatians is talking about. The, the law is not of faith. Everyone who relies on the words of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ lived by them. Christ did everything the law required. And that was for a purpose that he did that. So when we read about his life and ministry and his perfection, we can rejoice knowing that we've been redeemed and we've received that perfect righteousness by faith. And that's what I want to get to tonight with this, uh, with this doctrine, is to help you rest in Christ, to help you know that it is done. It is not something that we are still doing. Um, going back to Romans 5, just want to hit on a few points here. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, therefore, so I've always heard this uh, principle for interpreting and dealing with the scriptures. When we see a therefore, we need to understand what the therefore is therefore. We need to know what it's talking about. So, when it says, therefore, you need to pay attention because it is either just told you something really important or it's getting ready to tell you something really important. And in this case, it's a little bit of both. But what it says after that, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this, we have been justified. This is a reality that has already happened to us. We are not being justified. Justification is what they call a static reality. It's stationary. It happens in the past. There's nothing more that you can do to justify yourself before God. And that's why I thought it was important to talk about this before I dug into sanctification. Because sanctification is not a static reality. It occurs through the rest of your life. Sanctification is the Christian life. Right. Well, it's twofold. Because there's a positional sanctification and there's, you know, where Christ has, 
you know, Christ has reconciled you to God, so you are set apart as holy by the righteousness of Christ. And then there's that progressive sanctification where uh, we'll talk about here in a little bit in Romans 8, uh, time permitting, um, about how we are still, we are being conformed to the image of Christ's perfect righteousness, but we're not there yet. If not, so sanctification is an ongoing reality. Justification for the Christian is a um, is a reality that doesn't change. A reality that can't change. Because to be justified, it's a legal term. It is what they call a forensic term. Uh, this doctrine is referred to as forensic justification, which means that this is uh, the action by where God declares us to be righteous. Not that he infuses any righteousness into us, but that he declares us righteous, righteous based on the merits of Christ. And since Christ's righteousness does not change, and if that righteousness is imputed to us, then by definition, the righteousness that has been imputed to us doesn't change. Because Christ is God. God is immutable. And so when you understand this, it sets you up better to view a doctrine like sanctification, even your... Um, Progressive sanctification. Because you realize that now your entire Christian life doesn't come from within you. As Martin Luther said, it is a righteousness that is extra notes outside of you. The right, so everything in your Christian life, your sanctification, your all this other stuff flows out of that union that you now have with Christ. And it is unchangeable. For all times. Christ purchased it for you on the cross. And so it's a. Um, Therefore we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We presently have this peace with God. Since we've been justified by faith in Christ. We can have this perfect peace. Because we have this, we have Christ's righteousness, we are united to Christ, and if we are united to Christ, um, we have the intercession of Christ. You know, we sing, uh, it makes me think, we sing that song, uh, Before the Throne of God Above, and it says, Before the Throne of God Above, I have a strong and a perfect peace, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. And so that is where our peace comes from. Because we have the righteousness of Christ. We have the intercession of Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So this faith... This grace we've received through Christ. That is, again, that is through our union to Christ. This is not something we do. Even the faith by which we believe, Ephesians chapter 2 says, is a gift. This, you know, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of your, you know, that's not your own doing, but it's the gift of God. The things we have received through Christ. We have God's Holy Spirit. We presently have the Holy Spirit. For while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows the love for this, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since that, and now it says it again, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we shall also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, that's past tense, received reconciliation. So it says that it's based on nothing in us. We were sinners, dead in our trespasses, deserving of condemnation. But even in that, God shows his love for us, for us, that is, for those that are redeemed by his blood. It's personal. It's not just a, it's not a possibility. So many people, and that's another place where justification goes off the rails today, is when people think that this is something that we're doing. That, oh yes, we can receive all these things through Christ. But first, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. No, this is personal. This is something that God, God has shown his love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we don't need to internalize this. This justification is not a subjective reality. It's not subjected to how you feel about your salvation. It's not subjected to how you feel about the church. It's not subjected to how, how well your uh, prayer life is going. It's not subjective to how well your Bible study is going. It's not subjective. It's not based on anything that you've done. It's not based on anything that you do. Since it's a static reality, it is nose outside of you. It is based in Christ. Therefore, it's objective. Why is it important to bring that out? Well, because it helps when it comes to having assurance. Because it, and don't get me wrong, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith, to go to Scripture and examine our life and see if it's true that we are indeed in the faith. Because self-deception is a real possibility. It is. But the problem that so many people have is they start looking at sanctification as the reality that we need to gauge our standing in Christ by. Our, not, not our positional sanctification, because that flows directly out of justification. And if you have an improper view of justification, you by necessity have an improper view of positional sanctification, so then you are looking at your good works, and you're thinking, oh, I, I, you know, I've done this more than I wish I had, or I've not done this as well as I wish I had, and you start looking internally for those signs of your justification. You internalize your entire faith, and you try to live inside of yourself, and most of the time, if you internalize it and it doesn't upset your view of yourself, if it doesn't make you question, if your whole, um, if your whole idea of your salvation is all internalized and it doesn't make you question some things, you might have a wrong view of salvation altogether. But just because you feel that way doesn't always mean that you should question your salvation because when you look you know when you're saying oh well you know if it's something as simple as um you know well we know that christians pray christians read the bible christians do this christians you know they witness but you might go through a spell where you're not where you're struggling with that kind of stuff and you might turn it you might be tempted to internalize and say well I'm, you know i'm not witnessing I'm not reading my Bible. I'm not praying. I don't even know if I'm saved. Well, that's a, I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, there's cause for concern there. You should definitely pray about it. Because, it, you know, if you're having trouble doing those things, and you realize that, that may be the Holy Spirit convicting you and saying, hey, you need to be doing these things. You're not doing these things. What's the deal? But when we look solely to our fruit, solely to what lies inside of us, it can disrupt our confidence in Christ. That's why we are to, to place our entire, the entirety of 
our confidence in our salvation in Christ because we are united to Him and everything that we do in the Christian life flows from our union to Him. So I want to go, uh, we've looked at Romans 3, Romans 5, and now I just want to go real quick to Romans chapter 8. Um, and we're going to go to the last parts of Romans chapter 8. And uh, this is what is usually called by um, theologians the golden chain of redemption. We'll remember back to question 35 that it's because of the calling of God that these benefits are ours in Christ. So, Romans 8, starting at verse 28, so then we know that those that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And to those whom he predestined, he also called. To those whom he called, he also justified. To those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, and that's exactly what the catechism is saying right there. Um, because he has called us, these benefits have been applied to us through Christ. And if he's done the one, if justification is that static reality that is imputed to you, then you can have full confidence in glorification. You can have confidence in adoption because you have been reconciled to the Father through the Son. You can have confidence uh, confidence that one day you'll be glorified, uh, you know, when we go to be with him, you know, we'll see him as he is and we'll be like him, the word of God says. And so because of this unchanging reality of justification, we can have confidence that everything else he's done, he's going to do. Our salvation, our assurance of salvation life entirely in Christ. We can know and we can have assurance and we can be comforted that our confidence is in the sovereignty of God and the perfections of Christ and not within us. I just wanted to bring these things out tonight because we have a problem in our day and age with people think that they, I, I get saved, and then it's kind of, uh, kind of what the Galatians were doing. Back in Galatians, Paul says, um, you know, having begun by the Spirit, will you now be perfected by the flesh? You know, so... Could the Judaizers, see I'm preaching in Galatians and I didn't even know. <laughs> the Judaizers, they, you know, they, they wouldn't have said that uh, we, you know, we don't need Christ or we don't need the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. But they would have said, no, we have faith in Jesus. But now that we're in Christ, we do these other things. We do, you know, the ceremonial washing. We do circumcision. We keep the... Uh, ceremonial laws and you know so God's going to justify us and now we've got to sanctify ourselves now we've got to keep ourselves so everybody had everybody has it pretty easy but I get in by faith alone you know I'm in the club I'm in the tent I'm you know I, I'm redeemed but now I've got to do something to stay there and nothing can rob your assurance 
and nothing can take your eyes off of Christ faster than thinking that there's something you've got to do. Because if you really have the Spirit of God, which even born-again, Spirit-filled Christians can fall into this error of thinking that they have to do it all by themselves. That, or even that, you know, well, God will help me, but it's mostly up to me. And I... I yeah. Right. Which is basically going back towards the view that Luther was... Because the Roman Catholics... You know, I hear so many people say, well, they believe in salvation by works. Well, no, they, they believe in... They would say that we believe in justification by faith. But their, their issue is, their main issue, is that they don't tie all of it back to being justified by the blood of Christ. Well, I can be justified by the blood of Christ, but now I need to keep being justified by the blood of Christ by drinking the cup and eating the body and going to confession and saying the Hail Marys. And, you know, there are many good Catholics today that don't believe they've got to do all that. They do that, because that's part of the religion and that's how they feel that they are honoring God. But the Council of Trent, in the sixth session of the Council of Trent, justification by faith alone was anathematized. They said anyone who would say that man is justified by faith alone, apart from anything that he can do, or something to that effect, I don't have it written down, let him be anathema, which is the same word that the that Paul uses in Galatians, let him be cursed. Works of the law. And so, I, and I actually wanted to take you, I guess before we wrap up tonight, wanted to take you to a common objection to this doctrine that I've actually had many people bring up um, and it is in James chapter 2 and I just want to address it because I hear this argument a lot well James chapter 2 says you're not justified by faith alone so there you go you're a heretic So we need to look at the context of the claim that they're making. It says, starting in, we'll go ahead and start in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself does not have works. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We're right there, the Roman Catholic or any other, uh, you know, even Judaite, Jehovah's Witness, uh, the Mormons all believe like this, and they would say, see, that, that shoots Martin Luther in the foot because man is not justified by faith alone. Huh. Well, as a matter of fact, I had one guy tell me one time, that's the only time faith alone appears in the whole Bible. And it says we're not justified by faith alone. Well, 
They're misreading this text. They're mishandling it. A person is not shown, this is a note from the Reformation Study Bible. A person is not shown to be just by the mere profession of faith or by having a faith that remains alone, never producing any good works. The validity of one's profession is evident to other people only by what one does. None of our deeds are worthy of ultimate justification in the sight of God. Only the merit of Christ avails for that kind of justification, for that declaration of righteousness in his sight. Only by trusting in Christ alone can we be declared righteous in the sight of God. Here James attacks all forms of antinomianism, that's anti-law, antinomianism is being against the law, is literally what it means. It's a Greek word. That seek to have Jesus as Savior without embracing him as Lord. Just as Paul demonstrated that trusting in one's own works is deadly. So James teaches that resting on empty or dead faith is deadly. So we hold these two truths in tandem and we say, we are really justified by faith alone. But I, I think it's often attributed to Martin Luther that said, faith, we're, you know, we're justified by faith alone, but that faith that saves does not remain alone. And so that's the answer that you can give to people when you get that question, because if you do any kind of defending the faith, you will get that question. Well... James chapter 2 says we're not justified by faith alone. What do you do with that? Well, just as works are useless without faith, they said, actually, and works without faith is sin because you're trying to commend yourself to God. What, whatever does not proceed from faith is a sin. So if you're doing the work thinking that you'll commend yourself before God, then you're in sin that way. So... When, you, when somebody approaches you with James as a proof text for why Protestants are wrong, you can say, no, that's just uh, combating the equal but opposite error of salvation by works. It's saying, you know, you can't have one without it, out the other, but it is not saying that we could ever attain by our works on our own. And if you keep reading that passage that we did, we read through it, you're going to see that, well, he wasn't talking about me commending myself to God by my works. Okay. Okay. Commending yourself to God, it means that you can't, you will not, nobody, nobody in the world, no matter how many good works they've done, um, they will not stand before God on the last day. And when God looks at them and they stand before his judgment throne, he'll not say to them, well, why should I let you in? And they say, well, let me tell you, I just, I donated every charity I could. I clothed the poor. I fed the hungry. I took in the widows and the orphans. And I done all this. Well, what have you done with my son Jesus? If that answer is, um, well, what about Jesus? Uh, what, what was that? I mean, you're not going to stand there and say that because what you are doing, if you think you're going to be justified by your works, is saying, I don't need Christ. So works are important, but they could never, uh, I've been using the term commend, but they can never make you right with God. That God will never look at your works outside of Christ and say you have done enough. Because the truth is, Romans 3 tells us that all of sin and fall. And a lot of people, they, they quote that verse and they say, all have fallen short. And I think that some, uh, some translation probably word it that way. I think the King James does. But really it's all fall short. We continually fall short of that glory because we are fallen creatures. We are sinful human beings. We need the grace of God. We need the perfection of Christ if we're ever going to be justified before God. And that righteousness is received by faith. 
And real quick, before I wrap this up, I just want to say that when somebody approaches you and says, well, you believe you've got to have faith, so, well, that's a work, isn't it? Because you've got you to play through faith in Christ. No. Faith, if we're going to use a human analogy, faith is an empty hand that lays hold of Christ. that it's a continual coming short. Not that just, well, we fall short at one time, but then, you know, well, we can work up to this get, this measure, and then, you know, right now we're right here in the glory of God. We're doing pretty good. That's not what it's talking about. All fall short continually. Um, but, like uh, Kevin was saying, you know, it's a, a, a faith that has changed you because that's the nature of saving faith, it changes you. It doesn't leave you in your dead state. It doesn't leave you spiritually dead and not knowing Christ. It brings Christ alive in you by faith. And through that faith, through that union to him, we naturally want to do what his, uh, you know, this, uh, I think it's in First John, it talks about, um, you know, if we, you know, we know that we love him because we keep his commandments and they are not burdensome. When you're in Christ, when you're united to Christ by faith, you naturally do what is required of you by Christ. You want to do good to your neighbor, love your neighbor. And that's what it said. What kind of person looks at that, that law of God and says, well, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to love my neighbor. Now, now, nobody does that perfectly. I'll just say that. Nobody ever perfectly loves your neighbor as yourself. Nobody perfectly loves God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. But we surely wouldn't say, oh, well, you know, man, I've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, but man, I just, I feel like going over here and worshiping idols. Or, I, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, not loving my neighbor. You know, I, I like going to church because that's what... God says to do, but man, I sure hate being around all them other people, you know. No, that kind of faith is the kind of faith that can't save you because it has that rod of change within you. It's not, you are not possessing, laying hold of Christ by faith if that's the kind of faith that you think I have. It's not a mere mental ascent where I believe, where I just, um, I pay a mental homage to these facts that, okay, Christ died, he was buried, rose again the third day, and now I'm justified, so now I'm good, and it doesn't matter what I do with my life, it doesn't matter if I serve Jesus, it doesn't matter if I'm a disciple of Jesus, because, hey, I'm justified. That kind of faith is alone. It has no works, it shows no fruit, it shows no evidence of the fact that your life has been changed by Christ. But a, a life that has been justified and is being sanctified and will be glorified shows that fruit of you coming and loving and serving Christ and his people. And this is all, all of that flows from your union to him and that's why it's not burdensome to you. So I just wanted to share that with you guys because I, I wanted to encourage you guys to really consider your faith in Christ and to really consider the blessedness of the gospel of what Christ has done for you in that he died for you while you were still a sinner and justified you freely before the Father. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who has commended us before you. Lord, for his perfect life, his obedience to the law, the works that I can never attain to, the things that I can never do, he has purchased for me by his blood. And Father, we thank you for the peace that you have brought 
to us in your son that we may know you and love you. Father, we just pray that as we live out of our union with Christ and as we rest in Christ and as we cherish and we treasure Christ, that you would guide our hearts in love for those that you place around us, that you would pray, place a fire in us to share the gospel and to see others come to know this Jesus who has done so much for us. We give you this praise in Jesus' name. Amen.